0: Open with me, if you will, to Genesis end of 49, beginning of 50. So attend then to the hearing of God's precious and infallible word. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Now when the days of his mourning were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks and their herds, they left in the land of Goshen. And they went up with him, both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. And they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went with him up to bury his father. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its instruction. For its opportunity to uh, convict us and to guide us, to direct our steps, so that we may glorify you and point others to you as well. May that be true of our time today. Please keep me from error. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Names are significant. I believe the uh, new parents among us are recognizing the joys of being able to choose names for their children. No less so for the veteran parents, I'm sure. Uh, it's also true for naming churches. Uh, I've had the opportunity to attempt that twice and even with one to do a revision when we were uh, trying to get the work in Montrose to get some momentum. We renamed the church, but at any rate, with some consultation, trying to think of a name that represented the vision for how we wanted that congregation to be in that community. And no doubt it is for our children, too. Uh, The meaning that Pastor Duff spoke to us of uh, Shara this morning speaks to the vision, the hopes and the joys of the parents. Uh, There's a church, I believe it's out in Valley, that some of our extended family go to where we sometimes have used their social hall for family gatherings, it's called the Gathering Place. And I'll admit, at first, I was like, you know, that's just kind of a little touchy-feely, you know, so modern. But as I came to this text, I was convicted to not be so deprecating of the idea of church as a gathering place, right? Uh, Insofar as it is merely a social gathering, that would be misplaced. But it is that, and much more. And uh, so may we be reminded in the use of the word gathering in this text, and I placed it there in the title, but to recognize it's more than just where we go to meet our friends. That would be the visible church as we speak of it. But as is borne witness to in our text this morning, God gathers and there is a gathering place beyond the grave that faithful men look to. So that's my point in the title there. And so indeed, as we look at this text, as we look at all the body of Scripture, it is wise for every one of us to consider the fact that one day, sooner or later, we will die. Uh, some people actively fight against this reality, and many others try to simply ignore it, uh, suppressing that truth in their own unrighteousness. But um, ultimately, any of those courses fail. Death will come, and then comes judgment. Judgment. And in the chapter before us today, Jacob provides a very good model of being mindful of his death. He knows it's coming. He has his plans for when it happens. And importantly, his plans for when that happens are based upon and give substance to his faith in what will occur long after his own personal death happens. So in this way, Jacob serves as a very good model of how to prepare for death well and how to have one's eyes to the distant future when making plans for the proximate future. Remember, he had just finished telling his sons about the last days. And as I referred to last week, that concept of the last days is the days when the Redeemer, the Redeemer King, will triumph and restore all that was lost. Here, Jacob reveals his faithful plans for the near future in light of his faith in the eschatological future. But before we get to these uh, admirable points of Jacob's faith, I think it's worth noting that that wasn't always the case in Jacob's life. And this can be a way in which we can approach ourselves closer to Jacob. It's easy to think, oh, one of the patriarchs written in the histories, you know, if we had a child named after him, he's gonna hear that name coming up in the text over and over again, have the little smile on his face as he hears his name stated. So Jacob is a pinnacle person within scripture. Doesn't mean he's perfect certainly doesn't mean he's flawless. All men are born in sin. And I believe we see a progression in Jacob's life, reaching, as it should, a pinnacle here at the end. Because earlier in his life, he was not so focused on heavenly promises, or at least he had a misplaced focus on heavenly promises. I do believe that from his birth, he knew of the promises to his grandfather and to his father before him. But he took a a carnal, an earthly approach to achieving them. Multiple times we read of the Lord being the God of Abraham and Isaac, and I put some of those references in your outline in the introduction section there, but only much later in the text do we read the Lord being stated as his God, the God of Jacob or of Israel. Uh, At the end of his life, we do read in his own words, I am to be gathered to my people, so that's a statement of his faith, as well as the inspired narrator saying the same thing in verse 33 of our text today. He was gathered to his people. So we see here at the end of his life, he had a knowledge, I am going to be there, but it wasn't only, you know, self-delusion. It could well be that he was misstating the facts. But it's the divine author here in verse 33 who says, indeed, he was gathered to his people. Thus, he ended his life well, joined to the lineage of the men of faith whose hopes will not, will not be disappointed. And we'll get to some more details on some of that fill-in biography later. But with that said, by way of introduction, let us now turn to the substance of the text, knowing that while Jacob was an imperfect man, he certainly grew in faith throughout his life, as we all need to do. And here in his death and burial, he illustrated for us the important truths that, first, death is certain. Second, God's gathering of his people is by God's sovereign choice. And third, our burying of the dead is our proper response to these truths. So let us begin with that first point, that death is certain. And I see this in how he approached his last minutes of life, these final verses of chapter 49. Perhaps for us who are well-schooled in biblical theology and a proper concept of life, and death, the uh, Beginning of creation, our own place in the unfolding of creation and the future, it seems obvious for us and unnecessary to say that death is certain. (laughs) But friends, we're in an age where people are trying to throw off any and all boundaries that Scripture puts upon us, whether that be gender boundaries, uh, geographical boundaries, or certainly mortal boundaries, People don't want to acknowledge the fact that a limit, such as mortality, is placed upon them. So it does bear repeating. Death is certain. How certain? Entirely certain. Certainly certain, right? As we read in Hebrews, this is chapter 9, it is appointed for men to die. Everyone, it is appointed for men to die. And importantly, the next phrase after that, and then comes judgment. So that is the end that awaits us all for this life. There is no way to avoid it. We will get hungry, so we need to eat. We will get tired, we need to rest. Our bodies grow old, and eventually they return to the dust. That's just the way it works. There is no way around it. It is so. Why? Not merely because of a biological clock ticking. It is so because that is what God has appointed. Clearly, Jacob knew that was the case. He did not seek to avoid it. He had lived a good long life. It was years before this, I believe 17 years, when he appeared before Pharaoh and spoke of, yes, I am quite old, but nothing like my forefathers. And then he lived another 17 years. So he was quite old. He lived a long and rich life with its trials, but a long and rich life. But being at peace with God, he embraced the reality of the future and could face it with hope, not fear. So having explained to his family gathered there. The prophecy he had received from God, he charged them. That's the word in verse 29. He charged them with regard to his burial. That's a word I believe we should be familiar in this congregation, at least having heard it. We hear the charge at the end of uh, most sermons here. I hope you're aware that merely means command. You're getting instruction, a summary instruction there at the beginning of the sermons when your pastors give you a charge. And so here it is, Jacob charging, instructing, commanding, his sons, how they should deal with him after he is deceased. It simply means to command. He gave them instructions, and those instructions were necessary to be kept. It's not the first time he'd given these commands. Uh, In chapter 47, he gave these instructions, albeit more briefly, to Joseph. That's 4730, where he implored Joseph to make a solemn oath, to promise that he would indeed take him back to Canaan, to that particular place that had such significance in his forefathers' lives. On that occasion, he simply referred to the burial place of his forefathers. Here, the instructions are repeated for all the brothers, not just for Joseph, as well as much more specificity in terms of the place, the geography, and the way in which it was acquired, that purchase. And it stated, the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah. So there's no way His hearers could confuse and think later, where exactly was it that father wanted him to be buried? No, it is very specific and very clear. Ties to the history, a known location. That's where they buried Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebekah, and Leah before him. One question that came to my mind is why Jacob felt it necessary to repeat himself. He'd already stated it before, I'm sure there had been private discussions in which as they left Canaan, he said, this this isn't the last time, remember I'm coming back. Or during the almost two decades in Egypt in which he would have said, remember, this is not our home, right? We're only here for a little while, eventually we all will be back, and I certainly want to be buried back there in Canaan. So why did he feel the need and see it necessary to repeat himself here? All his sons knew that their deaths, and certainly their father's death, was certain They all knew he was well advanced in years, and they all knew the family history as well as the future promises. Was he worried that they would forget? I don't think so. Was he concerned they would be unable to comply? Perhaps. Remember, they were guests, and uh, we could use that term loosely. It's sort of like taxes being voluntary uh, to a degree, right? There are certain penalties when you don't do what is Requested of you in paying your taxes. So, similarly, here they were guests in a sense in Egypt, but they couldn't just come and go as they desired. Even Jacob, Joseph, rather, the prime minister, second to none but the actual ruler of the land, had to ask permission to leave. Uh, how much more so for those who were in this despised a vocation of shepherding, living in the hinterlands up in Goshen, they did not have the right to travel as they desired. So I believe the main reason here is that he worried that they would be unable to comply. They were guests in the territory. They did not have complete freedom of movement. So he gave them clear commands. Uh, He charged them. He gave that command to bury him in the land of promise. And indeed, this command and the solemn vow that Joseph had made in chapter 47 proved useful So that Joseph could, in clear conscience, he didn't have to make something up, didn't have to stretch the truth, Joseph could go to Pharaoh, and this is in verse 5 of chapter 50, and say, hey, I promised my father. I've got to do this, right? And Pharaoh understood and permitted them to depart for a time. So all this to say that death is certain, and Jacob, as a man of faith, had his eyes fixed on the future. He did not try to avoid it. He did not run from it. He made plans and was prepared for it. Those plans necessarily involved others since, after all, once you're dead, you can't bury yourself. He needed others to comply. Which brings us to our second point. When all men die, those whom God chooses are gathered into the company of the patriarchs, those who share the faith of Abraham and are received into his bosom. So second point, God's gathering of his people is by his choice. I see this by way of emphasis in chapter 49, verse 33. Let me read that again. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. So while Jacob desired to be gathered to his people, as was seen in the words of verse 29, which began his deathbed instructions to his son, it is God who actually accomplishes that gathering right? The sons were to place him in the tube with the forefathers, but it was God who gathers his people. God is the God of the living, not of the dead. The gathering of those souls from the departed, bo- or departing from the bodies, that is the work of God. And it is the divine voice, as I already referred to, speaking through the narrator in verse 33, who tells us, indeed, Jacob was gathered to his people. It wasn't just a hope, wasn't just an empty dream, as he states it in verse 49 personally, but it actually did happen, as is stated by the narrator in verse 33. And note, from God's perspective, that was never in doubt, right? God was never wondering, is Jacob going to be gathered? Is this going to happen We've made plans, but maybe, maybe not. No, God never wondered. From God's perspective, it was never in doubt. By God's sovereign choice, it always was Jacob that was assigned to be the promised son of his generation. Before they were born, Rebecca was told, quoting Genesis 25:23, the elder shall serve the younger. The apostle Paul picks this up in Romans 9, where he explains that salvation lies in God's sovereign selection, not in man's works. Isaac, not Ishmael, right? Jacob, not Esau. Indeed, and this is Romans nine sixteen. it is not of him, that is the person who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Sadly, at times, this is what I referred to in the introduction, Joseph exerted his personal will, which Paul said, Shouldn't have happened, is is not going to accomplish the goal. He did run hard in his own strength in order to obtain by human means that which had been promised to him by divine means. So he had the right goal, but he tried to accomplish it, I believe, in the wrong ways. Did he really need to bargain to get the birthright in Genesis 25? I don't think it was an illegal bargain, it wasn't a sin to do. Perhaps it was opportunistic. Opportunity presented himself. He certainly did not need to turn it down, but he didn't need to manipulate somebody in anything. Did he need to deceive in order to get the blessing? Here, a much more clear, uh, problematic case in Genesis 27 with the bowl of stew coming to his father, that specially prepared meal. No, God had decided to show mercy. Jacob didn't need to have his own ways to accomplish God's end. And as Paul, continuing in verse uh, Actually, earlier in verse 11 of Romans 9 says, For the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Right? So this was always certain. It was always known that Jacob ultimately would be gathered to his people. He didn't need to have his own um, machinations in order to have that come to pass. And praise God that Jacob learned this lesson in his life. And well before the time of his decease, he had learned and embraced God's mercy. Remember his doxological outburst within the prophecy to his sons. I referred to it two weeks ago in the middle of the uh, prophecies to the brothers there. It's in verse 18. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. That is the cry of a man who knows his sins knows the future promise of a Messiah to atone for those sins, and knows of his place in heaven. It's an expression of a man who knows he's a sinner, recognizes he's saved by mercy, waits for that homecoming, and makes the necessary plans to be buried according to the divine promises. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. And undergirding Jacob's charge to his sons is his sure knowledge that God gathers his people according to his sovereign choice. Indeed, Jacob's dying breath was filled with words that expressed this hope and embraced God's promise. Jacob was confident that God would do what he had promised to do, and indeed, what only God is able to do. Which connects to the last section of our text. How do we respond To God's stated promises, especially when they are to be lived out in the life of a person, can no longer do them for themselves, right? So somebody has passed away. How do we live out those promises uh, on their behalf, as it were? And that's the subject of verses 1 through 14 of chapter 50. This is a lengthy narrative describing the burial of Jacob, quite the event. Other patriarchs are very matter of factly dead and buried, very simple. Doesn't make them less important, (laughs) certainly not. Makes this a unique event. Jacob was embalmed, uh, was lamented over for nearly double the normal time. Notice it says 40 days were required, but then they mourned 70 days. He was then transported on a multiple day journey, accompanied by a huge entourage. Not just his blood relatives, but the um, many Egyptians of higher stature. Though notice not all of his descendants came, they left the little ones in the territory there in Goshen. But as I said, many Egyptians of high stature came along. This was quite the funeral procession. It made quite an impact among those who saw it too. In verse 11, we read, and when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites saw, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. So it caught their eye. It was extraordinary from their perspective. It is rightly asked though, was it appropriate to mourn in this way? I would say yes and no. Uh, There is, and obviously it's the whole point of section three of my sermon here, (laughs) there is a proper manner of regarding the dead and burying them. There is a proper response to that death uh, because we need to acknowledge the facts. That's because of sin and sickness that we die. That's because of sin that there's murder unto death. Uh, The way things are now is not the way it was at the beginning. Thus, it's right for godly men to mourn the death of the saints. In Acts 8, when Stephen died at the hands of his persecutors, we read, quote, devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And note, that's descriptive. That's telling what godly men did. It doesn't mean that to be godly, it's required that you make, quote, great lamentation, whatever exactly that was at the time of Stephen's burial. But it does provide an example of how godly men regard the death of other godly men. And here, In line with that lamentation, in verse one of chapter 50, we read that Joseph wept. So there is a proper, we might call it sad and grieving response to the death of the saints. Yet at the same time, it's possible to do good things to excess, (laughs) uh, to lose a proper balance and get out of balance. And then it isn't always such the good thing, especially when others are watching and may misunderstand. Uh, consider here that the Egyptians had devoted great effort to embalming, likely born out of an appropriate desire to show respect for the body, right? That's a good thing, and I'll get to it why we should respect the body, but it digressed into a godless effort at immortality. They had a, a, a false view of the afterlife and developed their science of embalming to serve that false ends. So see how a proper made in the image of God, understanding that the body is important, is taken to a wrong end. This embalming as an idea of immortality. Also, the Egyptians spent many days in mourning. As I already said, it's good, it's okay to mourn. It's proper for there to be lamentation and grief. This too has a basis in proper respect for the dead. But 40 days? 70 days? Were they trying to impress somebody? Uh, I can imagine (laughs) perhaps some of the Egyptians were thinking, well, I hope by the time I'm dead, I'm maybe even Pharaoh and people treat me like this. Right. And so it's kind of a, a prideful trying to set people up to give, give to you what you are to be seen giving to others. So maybe they're trying to impress somebody or they're trying to appease their gods. And in fact, the scale of the funeral so impressed the Canaanites in that verse I read a moment ago that they named the place after them, Abel Mizraim, which means mourning of the Egyptians. So imagine in generations to come, and it wasn't very long before the Egyptians had grown tired of the Israelites and were persecuting them, the name of that place would call to mind an occasion where the Egyptians had highly honored the Israelites, right? So it almost became, to their condemnation, uh, the irony uh, to embarrass them. Remember, you guys had so honored and so expressed your grief that we named this place after you, and here you've come to persecute those very people. So, their own efforts at grief would mock them later. All that to say, it is right to give respect to the body of the deceased because it is a burial, uh, the treatment of the body and the burial of that individual is a picture of the great work of resurrection that is essential to our faith. And uh, here as we Include this section, and in the conclusion, I have a few really important verses from 1 Corinthians 15. The first one is verses 42 to 44. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body, it is raised in a spiritual body. So, see that set of contrasts corruption, dishonor, weakness speak to our natural state after Adam's transgression and our own actual sins, whereas incorruption, glory, power, speak of our spiritual state in light of Christ's perfect righteousness, atoning death and victory at the cross. So our burial pictures that transformation, that difference from the hopelessness that the Egyptians were lost in to the hope that all Christians find themselves in. And remember, This is continuing in 1 Corinthians. As Paul said, it's in that same chapter, chapter 15. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. But, that's not the case. But Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ Christ shall all be made alive. That is the reason why burial is important, because it pictures that seed going into the ground and later springing to life to bear more fruit. And so it is proper that we bury because we have hope in the resurrection. That resurrection hope is real because Christ was risen. If he's not risen, we are having no hope. We do have hope because Christ did rise. We will rise, hence our burial matters. So let us be people of what I'll call obedient moderation, obeying the Lord in faith, hope and love, not taking things to excess, to assuage a weak conscience or impress our neighbors, and certainly not to indulge in superstition. And to conclude now, reviewing these three points, remember that death is certain. This should humble us. It should cause us to pause. Friends, you and I, all of us are appointed unto death. And then comes judgment. And God, by his sovereign mercy, gathers his people unto himself. He is faithful. This verse was already read by us earlier. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because this death has lost its sting. We need not fear. We do well to seek for mercy, to know that those who, and we have a confidence knowing that those who seek will find, and he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And third, we rightly respond to the promises by faithful actions. In the case of Jacob, it was his earnest desire to be buried in the land, and that was promised to his forefathers and to his descendants after him. So we do well to remember that the land promise prefigures the entire earth being given to Christ, the true seed of Abraham, and indeed all heaven and earth are his. May he be our hope, and may we Be good stewards unto his glory. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this faithful witness of Jacob and of his sons in being obedient unto his requests. May we be uh, sons in faith. Insofar as we are united to Christ, who is the true seed of Abraham, may we be people who live our lives seeking your instructions doing them by faith, not merely to have outward conformity, but to have the inward change of heart pouring out into the way we live our lives. We pray that even today, even our amens now, even the singing of this song, even our conversation over lunch would be ways in which we live out obedient moderation, following you with all our heart, soul, strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.